I'm Felix Bunnell, the Housebound Historian. This is episode 10. We are reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking. In this episode, we're still in the section called Mary Kenworthy and the Railroads, 1873 to 1893, and this is actually part four. The Chinese had been popular once. They had been imported in large numbers by the railroad builders when cheap labor was needed. When the Chinese arrived, the Western people had looked on them as Genji, who would bring from the East on their narrow backs the much-desired tracks. The Chinese, one and all, were called John, and the stories of John's prowess as a construction worker almost reached the status of folk legend. John could work twelve hours on a handful of rice. Impassive John could handle blasting jobs that other men were too nervous to carry out. Brave John would work all day at the end of a hundred-foot rope, chiseling notches for trestle supports. Inscrutable John had the best poker face in a poker-loving nation. Good old John. And then the final sections of track were laid. The golden spikes were driven, and the construction workers poured into the western cities, into Tacoma and Portland, San Francisco and Seattle. The streets teemed with restless men, men with money to burn. Restless men soon broke, the Chinese among them. The fact that the Chinese were accustomed to receiving less than the white men no longer seemed laughable to the white workers. With the construction boom over and business slow, there was competition for every job, and fear of economic competition always increases prejudice. The hard-working, industrious Chinese, who were willing to take any job, to accept any wage, became symbols of discontent to the unemployed. Go home, John, the slogan said. Go, John. Some of the anti-Chinese argued that since businessmen were protected against the competition of cheap Chinese goods by a tariff, laboring men ought to be protected against cheap Oriental competition by a ban on immigration. When Congress, after a long wrangle, did curtail the entry of Asiatics, the leaders of the anti-Chinese movement were not satisfied. They wanted the Chinese already here to be expelled, and their arguments were the arguments of hate. In a single story, the Seattle Call, which claimed to speak for labor, spoke of the two-bit conscience of the scurvy opium fiend, the treacherous almond-eyed sons of Confucius, chattering round-mouthed lepers, those yellow rascals who have infested our western country, the rat-eating Chinamen. So spoke the voice of labor, and the better element, as they called themselves, agreed that the Chinese were undesirable. Quote, we're in substantial agreement that the Chinese must go, unquote, their spokesman said repeatedly. The quarrel was about the way in which the Chinese should be expelled. Radicals advocated direct action, load the Chinese onto ships or boxcars and ship them away. The conservatives sought suasion, talked the Chinese into going home. In Seattle, only the Methodist Episcopal Ministers Association had the temerity to go on the record as believing the entire anti-Chinese movement was, quote, cruel, brutal, un-American, and unchristian, unquote. The violence started in small communities where raids were easy to organize. At Rock Springs in Wyoming Territory, unemployed miners led an attack on the Chinese who had supplanted them in the pits. The mob drove the Chinese out of town, killing nine men and two women and then burning their shacks. Word of the attack, the successful action it was called in anti-Chinese papers, spread swiftly through the West. Four days after the disorder in Wyoming, a group of Indians and five whites resorted to violence at the Wold Brothers Hop Ranch in the Squawk Valley, about 20 miles east of Seattle. They raided the camp of 35 Chinese hop pickers, attacking at night, shooting indiscriminately into the tents of the sleeping Chinese. They killed three, drove the rest into the brush, and burned the camp. Later, the same week, the Chinese working in the mines at Coal Creek and Black Diamond were terrorized. Realizing that they were completely unprotected in the mining towns and on the ranches, the Chinese moved to the cities, where there were police forces and the rule of law. The police sided with the mob, and the Chinese found themselves outside the law. 
Laboring men in the city saw that a large pool of cheap Chinese labor would permanently depress wages. They demanded that the Chinese must go, and they meant right now. When lawyers and ministers and public officials temporized, citing American treaties with the Chinese government, quoting the Bill of Rights, pointing out the injustice of arbitrary action, the workers questioned the motives of the speakers. They believed that those who spoke for a rule of law spoke really in behalf of the rule of the railroad and the land companies, in behalf of the interests. There had arrived in the Northwest a short while earlier a man named Dan Cronin, an organizer for the Knights of Labor. He came north from Eureka, California, where he had organized the Sinophobes of that community. A good organizer and a superb propagandist, Cronin shrewdly organized Labor's part of the anti-Chinese movement on the basis of distrust of the motives of the moderates. By overstating the radical case, he offended the moderates and caused them to hesitate. Then he cited the hesitation as proof to the radicals that their allies were insincere. All this tended to increase the militancy of the radicals, not only with regard to the Chinese, but on other matters. It widened the gap between labor and capital, and that was what Cronin wanted. While conducting a membership drive for the Knights, Cronin also formed a secret organization dedicated to the expulsion of the Chinese, called the Committee of Nine. It was made up of interlocking cells of nine members, and each member of each circle was expected to recruit a full new circle of nine. There was an elaborate ritual of oaths, a carefully calculated atmosphere of secrecy and dedication. While the purpose of the Committee of Nine was the expulsion of the Chinese, Cronin was known to have more extensive aims. He admitted his belief in a society organized for production for use. He talked of a division of wealth. In his speeches on behalf of the Knights, he held to the line that the Chinese were only pawns in a game played for the benefit of capitalists. In Tacoma, where Cronin was most active, property owners hired detectives to infiltrate the circles of nine. Cronin had his men spying on the detectives. Fears that the anti-Chinese agitation would overflow into revolution became so acute that leading figures in the community took to wearing sidearms. Even Tacoma's Presbyterian minister made his pastoral rounds with the butts of two army revolvers bulging ominously beneath his Prince Albert. Cronin heightened the tension by arranging for a congress of Sinophobes from most of western Washington in Yesler Hall on September 28, 1885. Delegations came from eight communities and seven labor unions. And here's a footnote. Colby, Black Diamond, Newcastle, Seattle, Squawk, Sumner, Tacoma, and Whatcom were the towns represented. The union sending delegations were the Seattle Turn Verein, Seattle Typographical Union, Seattle Labor League, International Workmen's Association, and the Knights of Labor of Renton, Seattle, and Tacoma. The Anti-Chinese Congress elected as its president the German-born mayor of Tacoma, R. Jacob Weisbach. The other officers all came from Seattle. Meetings were held morning, noon, and night. Cronin, working behind the scenes, pushed through a set of resolutions that claimed most of the Chinese had entered the territory illegally and demanded that they all get out by the 1st of November. The Congress declared ominously that, quote, we hold ourselves not responsible for any acts of violence which may arise from the non-compliance with these resolutions, unquote. After voting aye to this ultimatum, the delegates listened to a fiery speech in which Mary Kenworthy accused, quote, the dog-salmon aristocracy, unquote, of being insensitive to the plight of labor. The Congress instructed each delegation to hold a meeting as soon as possible to elect another delegation, which would tell the Chinese that they must leave. Seattle's representatives booked Yesler Hall for October 3rd. The better element was alarmed at the anti-capitalist tone of the Congress and the elevation of Tacoma's mayor, quote, a foreigner who can hardly speak English, unquote, to the titular leadership of the anti-Chinese movement, 
offended those Seattle citizens who felt no Tacoman could possibly be better than a Seattleite at anything, even at hating. On the day the radicals met at Yesler Hall, the moderates, including Yesler himself, gathered at Fry's Opera House. The anti-Chinese party selected a committee of 15 to arrange for the expulsion of the Chinese. They wanted Sheriff John H. McGraw, who had succeeded the late Sheriff Wyckoff, to head their delegation, but McGraw was at the Opera House, deputizing the moderates and organizing them into a semi-military home guard. The two factions thought the worst of each other. The Opera House party looked on the Congress as a gang of toughs who were using the Chinese issue as a means of fomenting revolution. The Congress agreed with Mary Kenworthy when she called the Opera House party, quote, the representatives of ironclad monopolies, unquote, and the, quote, lackeys of those thieves who stole our timber and coal lands, unquote. Many Chinese left, but hundreds stayed on, some because they had investments too valuable to dispose of quickly, others because they were too poor to buy passage anywhere. The November 1st deadline passed quietly, but on November 3rd in Tacoma, the Committee of Nine took action. Before dawn, Cronin's men circulated through the community, giving word to the underground to be ready to strike. When the steam whistle at Lister's Foundry sounded at 9.30 a.m., hundreds of Tacomans poured into the streets. They marched through a steady rain to the Chinese shanties that dotted the business district and stretched along the waterfront, told the occupants to pack up, escorted them under armed guard to the railroad tracks, flagged a train, and while the conductor shouted joyously, put them aboard, I'll haul them, herded the Chinese into boxcars. After waiting a day in the rain at a siding, the displaced Chinese were taken to Portland. The whole affair was carried off without violence, indeed with a horrible friendliness that enabled the vigilantes to chat with their victims as they forced them into boxcars. Among the whites were men who could say that some of their best friends were Chinese. When news of the mob action in Tacoma was received in Seattle, the town braced itself for violence, but there were men on each side ready to compromise. On the afternoon of the Tacoma expulsion, three leaders of the Knights of Labor, four leaders of the business community, and five important Chinese met to talk over the situation. The Knights spoke of their determination to protect their standard of living. Then Mayor Yesler, ex-Mayor John Leary, and his partner Bailey Gatzert told the Chinese it was unfortunate, but that their countrymen could not be protected and had better leave. The Chinese agreed, but asked for time. The Knights acceded. A mass meeting for November 5th was scheduled by the Knights, and as a gesture of goodwill, speakers from the Opera House party were invited. Since the Chinese had agreed to leave, the meeting was something of a victory celebration for the anti-Chinese. More than 700 people, most of them laborers, crowded through the Marion Street entrance of the big red brick opera house, moved down the green velvet carpets, and found seats under the great gas flame chandelier. Feeling was so good that one of the Sinophobe leaders, George Venable Smith, a lawyer then completing plans for a utopian colony to be founded at Port Angeles, made a surprise nomination for chairman of the meeting, Mayor Yesler. The mayor was chosen by acclamation. The speeches were redolent of goodwill. The problem was solving itself. The Chinese would soon be gone. If all this harmony distressed militants like Dan Cronin and Mary Kenworthy, they needn't have worried. Judge Thomas Burke was perhaps the best lawyer in Washington Territory. Though he was exceptionally prosperous, he was well-liked by labor, for he was as Irish as a clay pipe, and many of the newcomers to Seattle and many of the newcomers to Seattle were recent immigrants from Ireland. They liked Burke's stumpy figure and his homely beer mug of a face. They liked the way he nicked the wealthy for substantial fees and refused to charge the poor for his services. 
but they didn't like the surprising fact that he opposed the knights on the Chinese question and helped organize the Opera House meeting. Many who had considered him an ally now called him an apostate. When Burke was introduced at the meeting, there were scattered boos and hisses. Others in the crowd hushed the demonstrators. Perhaps they thought Burke would recant. He paused, stared at the men and women sitting tense and hostile in the brown plush seats, and began to speak. He started softly, saying nothing more controversial than that, quote, false stories have been put into circulation inciting hostility against the Chinese, unquote. But as his rich voice boomed on, his words took on anger. Quote, we are all agreed that the time has come when a new treaty should be made with China restricting Chinese immigration to this country. But by the lawless action of irresponsible persons from outside, the people of this city are called upon to decide whether this shall be brought about in a lawful and orderly manner or by defiantly trampling on the laws, treaties, and constitution of our country, unquote. There was little doubt how Burke would decide this rhetorical question, and there was no doubt, as the boos increased, that the crowd disagreed. Would you, men of Seattle, even if you had the power, overthrow the law of the land and set up brute force and violence in its stead? For the first time in the history of this territory, an attempt is made to divide the community into two classes, laborers on one side and all the other workers on the other. This attempt is as wicked as it is un-American. The man who would now seek to divide us on old world lines is an enemy to all. And then he spoke as an Irishman to the Irishmen in the crowd. I cannot conceive how it is possible that any man of Irish birth could be so base, could be guilty of such black ingratitude, as to raise his hand in violence against the laws, the constitution, or the treaties of this country. If the Irishman is true to his own nature, he will love justice, and his sympathies will go out in overflowing measures to the weak, the lowly, the despised, and oppressed. He will not deprive any of God's creatures, not even the defenseless Chinaman, of the protection of that law which found the Irishman a serf and made him a free man. Those who come from other lands to live here must obey the laws and respect and honor the institutions of our country or go back where they came from. Booze drowned Burke's words. George Venable Smith jumped from his seat and shouted at the crowd, I hope the working men will be patient and listen to what Judge Burke has to say. Hot with anger, Burke brushed Smith aside. Quote, excuse me, Mr. Smith, unquote, he snapped. I can assure you that I need no one to intercede for me with a Seattle audience. I recognize the insidious and unworthy appeal to working men. But to them I say that if there is anything certain in human history, it is that of all men, the working man has the most vital interest in upholding the authority of the law. Where law ends, tyranny begins, and where tyranny reigns, the working man is a slave. By conducting ourselves as true Americans, pursuing lawful measures for the redress of any grievance, real or imaginary, this little trouble that in the mirage of passion now looms so large will soon vanish like a bad dream, and we shall all wonder what we were so wrought up about. I thank you for this patient hearing. I knew you would listen to me whether you agreed with me or not, even though I say things ever so distasteful to you. Burke's speech may well have been the greatest ever made in the Puget Sound area, more powerful even than the legendary oration by Chief Sielf. But it did not save the Chinese. Indeed, it may have made violence inevitable. Nothing is so painful as truth told by a former friend, nothing so infuriating as an unanswerable argument. Next day, the territorial governor asked the U.S. Secretary of War to send troops to Seattle to preserve order. 350 men and officers started north from the Vancouver-Washington Territory barracks. 
Mayor Yesler issued a proclamation asking everyone to uphold the law and warning that, quote, prompt arrest and punishment awaited all riotous violators of the law, unquote. Sheriff McGraw passed out rifles to the Home Guard. The revenue cutter Wolcott moved into the harbor and showed her guns. The anti-Chinese were furious at what they felt was a double cross engineered by the Opera House Party. They were angrier still when a grand jury, with J.C. Coleman, the railroad engineer, as foreman, indicted 17 Seattle men, among them George Venable Smith, for conspiring to deprive the Chinese of their rights. Smith told a mass meeting that his indictment was, quote, an attack upon free speech, upon the rights of labor, upon every man who earns his living not by speculation and plunder, but by the sweat of his brow, unquote. Mary Kenworthy explained to the same gathering that they were engaged in a class war, that labor and capital were, quote, marching toward irrepressible conflict, unquote. But the Sinophobes avoided violence while the troops were in town. The soldiers were hardly an unmixed blessing to the Chinese. While the officers were being entertained at the homes of the better element, some of the troopers entertained themselves by beating up the Orientals they had been sent to protect. Others roamed the Chinese district, shaking down the inhabitants for a personal protection tax. The soldiers were withdrawn in the middle of November. An uneasy truce lasted for ten more weeks. Both sides settled down to wait for the verdict in the conspiracy trials and to see if the legislature, which convened in December, would pass measures to force the Chinese out of the territory. In January 1886, a law forbidding Chinese to own real property was passed, but three other laws designed to exclude Orientals from obtaining public or private employment were blocked in the Senate after passing the House. The man who led the fight against them was Orange Jacobs, a former mayor of Seattle, who argued that they were unconstitutional. The same week that the legislature adjourned the case of the anti-Chinese conspirators reached the jury. It took the jurymen only ten minutes to find all fifteen not guilty. The stage was set for the showdown. The Sinophobes called a mass meeting for Saturday, February 6th. They assembled in the new Bijou, the most luxurious of the saloon-theater combinations located along the skid road. The proprietor of the establishment, who had been trying unsuccessfully, quote, to induce auditors of the gentler sex to visit my theater, unquote, must have blinked as the crowd assembled. More than a hundred women were among the 800 persons who crowded into the auditorium. Mary Kenworthy made another impassioned address, she was cheered when she interpreted the legislature's action as meaning that the dog-salmon aristocrats would pass laws to protect rich men against the competition of Chinese merchants, but would never pass legislation to protect the worker. She was cheered again when she said the time for delay had passed, the time for action was at hand. She did not say that no jury would convict a white man for violating the legal rights of a Chinese. She did not have to. The fifteen conspirators were all on the stage. When Mrs. Kenworthy left the platform, a new committee of 15 was appointed. The meeting passed resolutions instructing the committee to check and see if the Chinese were violating city regulations concerning the number of persons per cubic foot of air in residences. They undoubtedly were. The regulations had been drawn with the Chinese in mind. They were also to plan a boycott on all employers who hired Chinese, including Mayor Yesler. The committee was instructed to report back at a mass meeting the following week. After the crowd had filed out under the Roman arches, the real work of the Sinophobe leaders began. The rally, with its public plans for future action, had been camouflage. The anti-Chinese intended to solve the problem permanently the next day. And we'll stop right there. That's episode 10 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published by Viking in 1951. I'm Felix Bunnell. <laughs>